Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Hey everybody, welcome along to the show. I'm glad you could join me as today we get the chance to speak with Inet Pose, who's from Canada, and she has some amazing insights about leadership, structure change, and lots of other topics. Here's an excerpt from our conversation. People often ask the question, did you know that you would end up where you are now? And honestly, not a clue. Mm. I think that as I evolved as a human being, I refined the ability and I continue to refine it. I don't think I'm finished, but I've continued to refine the ability to hear my inner voice, to be guided by a sense of meaning and purpose, to continue to earn the right to be authentic. And I say earn the right to be authentic because I think one of the biggest challenges of being a human being Mm. is to be yourself in a world that's trying to make you something else every day. Mm. I have a little sticky note above my bed still, a little yellow post-it note that says that very thing, that every day my biggest challenge is to continue to be me in a world that's trying to mold me to to something else. Yeah. Because it's a long interview today, I'm just going to get straight into it. But believe me when I say that we touch on many, many fascinating topics. If you enjoy it, then consider telling a friend about this and also look into the back catalog because there's more than 100 other interviews with people pushing boundaries in some way. So you might want to check those out. Now let's dive straight into this interview. So it's a pleasure to welcome Inet Pose, who's the founder of Level 8 Leadership Institute. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's wonderful. And we met yesterday, didn't we? We um, did. <laughs> and had an interesting discussion. <laughs> and I said, I'd love to have you on the podcast because um, just your background and the things that you're involved in now, um, I think it will be helpful for people listening, particularly around um, the idea of system change and how you actually help to facilitate that happening. Um, but before we get into that, mm-hmm. what I like to do with guests is talk a little bit about their background and where they're from. So if you don't mind just telling us a bit about your childhood. So I am Canadian. I was born in a city called Toronto, mm-hmm. but I was raised in the country. So I have a love of concrete and uh, city life. And I also have a love of nature um, and quiet. So I have a, an interesting Uh, paradox that I live in my life of that tension between the city and the country life. Mm -hmm. I am a third generation family business member. So Mm -hmm. my on my father's side, my grandfather started a construction and roofing business a number of years ago. And uh, my my father and my uncle now currently run it and my cousins work in it. I don't work in the family business, um, but I certainly have a a love and an interest in uh, family business and the role of family uh, families and family businesses in the economics of uh, communities and cities and, and nations. So mm. that's a, uh, yeah, that's a little yeah. bit of my background. And that's something you kind of have gotten even more into with your career, isn't yes. it? And giving advice to people yes. and things. Yeah. So what was that like for you as a child, I guess, growing up in that context or that environment, like knowing that your grandfather had established this business? You know, it's interesting because I can't say that I really realized or 
thought of it as a family business when it was in it. It was just it was just the business, or right. it was just work. Um, and we were so immersed in it that it it wasn't really something that we talked about. It wasn't really until afterwards, or maybe the moment when I realized I didn't want to work in the business. I was very much an academic, um, and so all I thought about was school and where I was going to go to school and and leaving for university. Um, it never really occurred to me to stay and work in the family business. It just wasn't something that was inspiring. But I never really thought of it as a family business until I left and, you know, started to understand that, oh, yeah, other people have what's called a family business. Right. Uh, it was just not the, the common language. Because um, you're a fish in the water, right? Yeah, you don't you, know that you're yeah, in the water. <laughs> it's like somebody saying, oh, you have curly hair. It's like, oh, yes, I have curly hair. But you don't think about it until somebody says, well, you don't have straight hair. And right. so it, it, just to me, it was the business and not necessarily a family business. And even though everybody in the family seemed to work in it or be connected to it. Mm. Uh, but it was, and, you know, after the fact that I realized, oh, right, yep, I grew up in a family business and mm. have that experience of what it's like, the good and the bad, mm. uh, and the ugly, as they say, mm. um, of the, the challenges and the opportunities of, of working with family. Mm. And were you close with your grandfather? Did you know him well? I did. He died when I was uh, in my mid-teens, so mm-hmm. he died unexpectedly of cancer, and I think mm. that caught everybody by surprise. It was one of the big learnings because um, we didn't have a succession plan in place for the right. business, uh, and I think that we were still learning a lot about not taking our health for granted. I think that that was uh, that was another big learning for the family. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, we we grew up in where I lived in the country. Uh, my dad's family all live within walking distance, and so we would spend a lot of time. You know, my parents are working. We would mm-hmm. my grandmother would take care of us, or my nan and papera as they're French Canadians. So my nan and papera, we would you know spend time with them, and uh, they would care for us uh, you know periodically. So we got to. I can still hear him laughing. I can still you know see him sitting on his his favorite rocking chair in uh, in his living room. So mm-hmm. I still very much carry the presence of both my my grandparents have passed away on that side. Yeah, uh, but I can definitely still. Hear hear them and feel them uh, as my life continues to unfold. Yeah, that's great. And looking back from an adult's perspective, yeah. you know, thinking about your grandfather in particular, um, what were some of the characteristics about him that really stood out to you? You know, because it sounds mm-hmm. like he's, he founded a business that was yeah. successful. What was it that gave him the drive or things now that you look back? You know, I, if I could go back, I would ask him so many more questions. Mm. I think that when you're a, a young teenager, you really don't think to ask some of those questions. Yeah. And although we had family reunions and we spent you know Christmases together and New Year's together and Easter and you know Thanksgiving and all the major holidays the family would you know the extended family would get together I really wish I would go back and and ask him you know prepare tell us more about Mm -hmm. what it was like and how it got started and why'd you do it and I think that because he passed away before those questions really even entered my mind um, I never got a chance to ask him but when I think about him and what I remember as as a little girl I remember him I remember his laugh I mean he had what we call the pose laugh Mm. Uh, so I can still and I'm not going to even try to reproduce it because it's hysterical (laughs) but I can't do it justice but you know the good belly laugh that's contagious and Mm. you laugh just because the laugh is is contagious and fun Um, and I remember just the the work ethic I remember that you know working hard uh, was a priority that family was a priority so Mm. my my father or my grandfather and my father and and their and his brothers uh, worked you know together so uh, 
he worked in my nan stayed home and took care of the kids and the grandkids and she was very much involved in volunteering in the community um and so for me those are probably the big things that mm. you know the the family was around familyness to you know family and togetherness was really important uh working hard um being dedicated mm. uh to sort of helping the family in, in each branch of the family so my um my my dad has four siblings, so there's five siblings together, and all branches of the family. I think there was a real desire to uh, c- continue to help each branch of the family succeed. And mm-hmm. I remember that feeling even as a young teenager coming together. I love to sit. One of my favorite things to do when we would have family reunions, because um, it was always it was very traditional. So mm-hmm. we always ate the same kind of food, and right. and at, was always at my grandparents' house, my nana papa's house. Um, and there was the adult table and the children's table. Mm-hmm. But I remember as a little girl always being really intrigued to sit at the adult table. Right. Uh, and what drew me to that was I figured that these people have lived longer than I did. And so they must be doing something right. So can I learn from their experiences? So I, I loved as much as, you know, we would see our cousins and we would do kid things and be silly and play hide and seek and, you know, play games. Really, I actually preferred to sit at the adult table and listen to what the adults were talking about, whether it was business or politics or religion or all the things that you should never talk about with family. Right. Um, we would, you know, listen to the conversations at the adult table to see what kind of wisdom could I could I glean. Mm. And uh, I still remember, uh, I still remember, the, yeah, just the the feeling um, and the energy of having family together. Mm. It was one of the highlights for me of mm. my of my younger years. That's cool. And it sounds like there's echoes already there of, you know, the academic study and yeah. wanting to learn and yes. grow and things there. Yeah. And I'm curious what you said about your grandfather, just that the laugh, that you remember his laughing. Yeah. Because I think that is something, isn't it? Like if you, I guess if you're self, if you're confident enough in who you are, you can relax and enjoy the moment and have that sort of, the laughing. I was listening to an interview the other day, and the person was laughing a lot. Mm-hmm. And I thought they're doing something right. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. like, if you if you're present enough to be yeah. able to just enjoy the moment and laugh and yeah. yeah, there's something to that. Yeah, I think probably a, an element of you know he was so, sort of a bit of a prankster. Right. I, mean, I think everybody has a grandfather that plays the pull my finger game, mm-hmm. um, you know, and making farting sounds and silliness. And so I, I remember that about him. I remember him being silly and lighthearted and fun, as much as he was tough and you know challenging and maybe even aggressive at times. Of course, in business, it's a very construction and, and roofing is a very physical business. So mm-hmm. as much as he had that side of him I definitely remember seeing and experiencing the part of him where he would he would sit he had a rocking chair that was in the corner of the living room and everybody would have eaten dinner and you know everybody was sort of spread around and he would just be you know telling stories or making jokes or mm. I think he there was a part of him a softness as much as he was tough and focused and hard and aggressive at, at work mm. there was a part of him that was lighthearted and silly and joking um and I remember that as, you know, being a, a young member of the family. Mm, that's great. Yeah. And it sounds like it was quite a big family as well. Like yeah. There was a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> Can you just describe the role that your grandmother played within that, you know, as I guess as the matriarch of the family? Yeah. Oh, very special role. So my nan uh, passed away just even a couple of years ago. So she, she lived much longer than my grandfather. Mm. Uh, she was definitely a matriarch in many ways. She cared for her own children as well as... Uh, being the 
the matriarch and the caregiver for even the next generation. So mm. uh, she would say, if you had asked her, she would say that she also helped raise uh, so the grand, some of the grandkids in the family, which if, if you think about, I think both my, my nan and Papere came from really large families. They had more between, I think, 10 and 14 siblings each. Wow. So yeah. a very French-Canadian, uh, large families, and they had five children of their own, mm-hmm. of which each of them, I don't know what the numbers are up to now. It's quite an, an extensive, but I think the the fewest number of kids that any of the siblings had was three. So that's (laughs) at least five more, you know, grandkids. And then now we're into grand great grandkids and, and even great, great grandkids. So the, the, the story continues and we'll see where, if it ever ends, but it just keeps expanding. But Nan's role was definitely around food, um, togetherness, family, Mm -hmm. volunteering, contributing back to the community, finding a place for everybody, finding a way to include people in the family, working behind the scenes, I think, to support, whether it was my grandfather or the business, uh, or to help individual family members grow. I've certainly seen that show up in many different ways. I'm thinking particularly when I was even a teenager, but then as I, you know, she, as I grew up and I became a mom myself and I saw her at that stage of her life, she really never wavered from that. She was really sort of that, that anchor. And even when she passed away, I still think that, uh, her love of her family really brought everybody, Mm. you know, back together, Mm. um, even to celebrate, you know, her life and what she's contributed. Um, one of the things that, uh, my family did, uh, that we put together for my grandma, for Nan's funeral, was a family tree and at the core of it started with my nan and papere and then showed all of the different branches and the grandchildren's and great-grandchildren yeah. um, and definitely when i i remember seeing that my sister painted it and with my mom and it was a sense of an awareness of what two people mm-hmm. can co-create and steward together and so there was a real sense of even as they were you know my nan was passing on a real sense of appreciation for I don't even know if she would have had an intention to create that, but a real sense of appreciation that somewhere her ripple effect of her love and gratitude and caring for her family Mm. has produced all these incredible things that now will carry on beyond her life. Mm. And so that was a really, for me anyway, a really inspiring moment Mm. um, at a sad time when she, when she had passed. Mm. Which is really about legacy, isn't it? Yeah. I think so often we're focused in our careers on, you know, meeting deadlines and getting this report in or whatever. But someone like that, you know, what's the legacy that's been left if there's that many grandchildren, great grandchildren, and probably you're you've got three boys, don't you? So they would actually remember her as their great grandmother. Yeah. Which is an amazing thing. Yeah. 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 My um my great grandfather, he had four children and then each of them had two or three children. So you can imagine it doesn't take long, does yeah. it? <laughs> and um as part of this podcast at the very end I put a little bit of piano music mm. and it's actually a riff off of a song that he wrote in the nineteen oh. thirties. Yeah. So it's my little nod to him saying thank you, you know, like he died in 1960, so I never met him, Mm -hmm. but he had a profound impact on these generations that flow. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, we all take a piece, right? We um, we take up a piece of our ancestors, or some of my mentors like to say that we stand on the shoulders of giants, and mm-hmm. those are really all of the people that have come from from before us. Yeah. Um, and really, in uh, anticipation of all the people that will come 
mm. from, you know, after us in the future. Yeah, that's right. And the legacy that someone who cared for her family that much can have mm. as well, because you might have been tempted or someone might say, well, but she wasn't the CEO of the company. Mm-hmm. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? But there's different types of legacy. And a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask you just um, you've used you referred to French Canadian, mm-hmm. you know, what is that? What was that part of your culture growing up? Like, how did that shape who you became? And yeah, what, what does it mean to you to be French Canadian? Oh, great question. I don't know that I've ever been asked that question. I, I think I have more of an understanding and interpretation of what it means now than what I don't know if I was aware of that. Again, I don't, maybe there's just certain things as a kid that yeah. you don't think about until somebody you know, gives you a label or, or can contrast you to somebody else. You don't think about, mm. uh, you don't think about that. I never really thought of myself being Hungarian, uh, which is my mother's side of the family. I never really thought of myself as being, as being French Canadian growing up. And mm. then it wasn't until later on and people started asking and then I went, Oh yeah, right. That side of the family is Hungarian and it's an immigrant family. And this side is French Canadian. And I'm sure we have indigenous roots, uh, because of course, a lot of the people who are French Canadian, um, are somewhere along the line of mixed marriages from from the mm. indigenous people, which they're called Métis, so Métis, which, uh, which of course is on my dad's side as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so growing up, being French Canadian really just meant that we spoke French with our grandparents, right? So right. when we would, when they mm. would babysit us, they would speak French to us, or when they take care for us, they would speak French to us. Um, but I went to an English school, and my siblings all went to a French school, so I didn't learn I learned French in school but as a you know one subject at a time right. was my sibling. it wasn't an immersion type no of situation. no no not yeah. for me my my siblings all did they right. they all learned uh, French and so when they did were upset with me they would speak in French <laughs> but the good thing is I knew all the swear words so that when they you know were upset I could get a, an idea of what kind of you things they were saying yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all the priority words <laughs> so I think it, it meant um it meant speaking French mm. Um, it definitely meant uh, large families, uh, and de- definitely we were aware of that. You know, parts of our family mm. uh, spoke French. I knew my my name was French, at least my last name was French, and uh, you know we have an accent, and so you're you're aware of those things. But mm. until somebody comes along and and asks a question like you just did, which is what does that mean? It's really just who you are. It's it's not you don't yeah. you don't. For me anyway, I didn't I didn't uh, I didn't separate it from who I was. It was just something that was a part of, of mm. our life, mm. and it became more meaningful, I think, as I got older, mm. especially now with our kids. Right. Uh, so my husband's family is, uh, his mother is Greek and his dad is from India, mm-hmm. so we have a very eclectic mm. cultural uh, diversity just in, in our family, and I think that that's when it really, I became aware of what does it mean to be French Canadian. What does it mean to be Hungarian? What does it mean to be Greek? What does it mean to be Indian? And what does it mean to be all four of those things at once? Right. Uh, and so we, you know, even when we got married, uh, we had a little celebration of those four parts of who we were now coming together. Mm. And our kids are well aware of it. And I think that maybe, maybe that's a big difference between when I was a kid and, and now that there are kids is that we talk more about. Uh, those parts of our family as we are educating our kids or introducing mm. them or even inspiring them uh, to know where they've come from, mm. you know, and understanding who they are and, and our family story and some mm-hmm. of the tradition and history that's been passed on. Yeah. So it's becoming more conscious and more intentional, I think, mm. than what I felt it was for me. And that's not a bad thing. It's not that my parents weren't um, didn't celebrate where they came from. It was just 
not necessarily something we talked about yeah. as much as I think maybe we're now more intentional with our own kids and with our even now the the next the next generation of kids that are that are coming. Yeah, so it's about grounding in the past, isn't it? Sort yeah. of where are you from and that <clears throat> yeah. identity. And you mentioned you kind of hinted that you knew that you wanted to to study. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> academics intrigued you. Yeah. Like, was that so just tracing back to childhood and things, was that coming through quite early on or yeah. you know, high school years? What sort of subjects did you enjoy? Oh wow, that's those are great questions. So I remember I still have a book. It was called The Curious Kitten and it was given to me by Mrs. Bartosik, which was one of my earliest teachers that I can remember, who right. I remember loving. And the little inscription on it says, and I'm just going to paraphrase, basically, uh, I'm giving you this book uh, in honor of the fact that you are such a curious kid. And this story is about, you know, a little curious kitten who yeah. tries everything they can to climb over the fence to see what's on the other side of the fence and keeps uh. coming back. And so I think I must have expressed some qualities, good or bad, <laughs> around <Yep>. my curiosity. <laughs> I'm sure I caused some sorts of trouble uh, yeah. in school because I definitely... Um, had a healthy appetite for pushing boundaries as part of my curiosity. Uh, but definitely learning, I would say, to this day is my highest value. So learning mm -hmm. leadership and legacy are sort of the core, what I call my trinity, mm -hmm. the three things that make up who I am. And I would say at its, at its very core, my desire to uh, learn and understand and explore has driven me for a very long time. And so I loved school. Uh, <laughs> being this going to sound silly, but I was the kid who hated missing school. If I was sick, I had to be pretty much almost dead not to go to school because I didn't want to miss whatever class. I particularly didn't want to miss the French class, ironically. I had a, a, a fabulous uh, French teacher, Madame uh, Lorraine Curry, who was her name, uh, and loved her, was inspired by her, and hated missing school. So I remember that in elementary school. I went to a really small school, so there was 30, maybe give or take 30 kids, uh, from kindergarten to grade 8 in two classrooms. So we had a junior classroom and a senior classroom, and everybody was crammed together. And when I graduated, there were seven kids in my graduating class. So wow. there was four girls and there was three boys. And that, so that was how tiny our class was. And that could also be part of it. I was in a small city, or not a small city, a small town, mm -hmm. going to a small school. Um, and when I was 10, my grandfather took me, on my mother's side, took me to Hungary to uh, experience some of our you know, Hungarian family and Hungarian tradition. And I think that that unlocked something that was just laying dormant mm -hmm. in a desire to explore the world, um, not just where I had come from, but the recognition that there is more out there. It was, right. You know, pre, this is the pre-internet, right? Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, to, to go on a plane and stretch your mind and the time and space to be in another part of the world, I think just activated something for me which already existed, which was my love of people, mm. uh, my curiosity of the world, and that just blew things wide open. Mm. So, so how old were you when you did that trip? Yeah, we, I was 10. Right. Yeah, my mom wow, looks really back early. on it. She thinks, oh my God, how, what was <laughs> I thinking? You know, I was sending a 10-year-old for two weeks with my grandfather, you know, uh, across the across the world. At that mm. time, felt certainly pretty far. Things feel closer now. Yeah. And, um, but I never, I never stopped learning. Um, but what a legacy, you know, just thinking about that, yeah. that a grandfather would take their granddaughter yeah. to explore a <laughs> yeah. country. Like, I, I just love that, you know, yeah. like that's opening the mind of the next generation yes. in a way that is really special. 
oh my gosh, it was amazing. I remember, I mean, what an incredible feeling. And I still, like, I can still smell the sheets. I can, I can mm. see uh, the sense of, I mean, when you do a long travel as a kid, I still remember one of the biggest journeys that we did and being so exhausted. I've never been more tired in my life. And I think my grandfather still remembers this story. But um, I w- there was a, a particular, like, a little, like a day bed that I ended up sleeping on. And I'd never been so grateful to put my head on a pillow maybe ever in my life because I still remember the feeling and the smell and the feel of the sheets because it's so vivid in my mind. But just that gratitude for having a place, having traveled so far and to be so welcomed. And most of the people didn't speak English. And so it was a lot of uh, translation between gestures and nods and smiles. And really, you're just using your senses to try to figure out what are people saying and right. is this a friendly gesture or not yeah. a friendly gesture and that's at 10 you know so i think that left a huge impression on me and the ability to transcend um familiarities i mean I, everything was unfamiliar the sound of what they were saying the the cadence of which people were talking about the food that they ate the clothes that they wore they were driving you know the cars that they drove the types of houses they lived in and it was so mind expanding to me and to yet feel that this is part of my family so the i think there's a cool thing when it's it's not like it's you know you're a tourist and you can s- separate well that's not me that's not my family that's totally different this was an, an honoring of these are the roots of where I've come from. These people are somehow mm. part of my DNA and part mm. of my history, which is cool to say, oh, wow, there's a whole part of my life and a whole part of who I am that I, that I didn't know about until, yeah. until I was there. And that, of course, was just another catalyst for me to really become even more curious mm. about, you know. It's interesting because I think... Uh, I want to come back to that, so hold sure, that thought. Sure. Just, I'm just thinking of the echoes in my own life. Yes. So yeah. when I was 11, my father went on a business trip to the Philippines, yeah. and he took me. Ah. And so we, he was um, helping with raising prawns. He's a mm-hmm. marine biologist. And we ended up in Manila. This is like the late 1980s. And I just remember as a kid, like my mind was like, what is going on? You know, like there's chickens here, and there's motorcycles, and all this hot, you know, food, different ways of doing things. And I wonder if it maybe sparked a curiosity in me as well, you know, Mm. to to explore the world. And now I'm thinking of my own kids, so maybe I need to go on a trip, (laughs) (laughs) take them somewhere. Yeah, well, you know, funnily enough, that's amazing that you said that. I hadn't connected this dot either, but last year Mm. uh, I spoke for a conference here in Auckland, and I brought my 10-year-old son. Right. And so I hadn't thought about that, you know, passing down. It's, it's not echo. my not my grandson, yeah, yeah. but it's a little bit of an echo in terms uh-huh. of just and I remember my husband and I were chatting and I remember having the conversation to say, you know, at 10, that was so impactful for me. Mm-hmm. And we'll see for Xander, who that's my eldest son's name. We'll see, you know, fast forward in the future what it does for him. Yeah. Um, but it certainly has launched our speaking career. We now travel and, and speak together as a result. It was just cool. a longer story, but yep. we ended up presenting. I went and did a keynote, and then he and I taught a workshop together. And now we have, you know, other speaking engagements that we do together. And that all launched from, you know, him being 10 and being able, 
like, again, he's very curious like I did. And so walking around the city of Auckland and mm-hmm. seeing things different and drawing, driving on a different side of the road. And the thing that really caught his attention was homelessness, mm-hmm. uh, which is interesting because that's a similar um, part of humanity, the humanity that catches my attention. Mm-hmm. But it has every time, it's funny thing is every time I come back to the side of the world, he expects that he's coming with me. Like right, we're joint right. business partners Where's now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's special. Yeah. That's so nice. now he has a list of cities that he wants to go to. I invited him to do that. I said, well, look, you know, here's yeah. the globe. We have globes and world, uh, maps of the world everywhere in our house. And so I invited him. I said, look, here's the world. Pick a, pick a country and a city that you want to go to. Mm-hmm. Uh, research it so that you have a, a, just, you know, a reason to want to go there and come up with a business plan. You know, it, there's no there's no entitlement, so you're gonna have to figure out how you're gonna go serve that country so that there's there's a reason for you to go and contribute. Yep. But in sort of encouraging that curiosity outside of himself, outside of our family, outside of the community that we live in and outside mm-hmm. of Canada, the wonderful country that we live in, mm-hmm. go and explore the world and figure out mm-hmm. um, one, how can you be of service? And two, uh, what would you love to learn about the world? Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's good. Yeah, it's an uh, incredible, if you can open the eyes of a child to different cultures and different ways of doing things, then I think that's kind of what we're concluding is that it will set them on a course of curiosity. Mm-hmm. And it's something I notice in my daughter, who's 11 now. Oh, yeah. um, so we've done quite a bit of travel as well. And yeah, I, I would say she's quite a curious child, you know. And, yeah. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. So just draw us back then in terms of what you actually studied. Sure. <laughs> when you, you know, when you finished high school, say, yeah. what, 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 and, and I also want to understand more about the three L's that you said. Yes, the, okay. So um, the learning and the legacy and what leadership, was the, the yeah. leadership, yeah, yeah, and how they how they fit together. Sure. Um, but, but maybe just first what you studied. <laughs> so by the time I got to university, um, I was really interested in the connection between the mind and the body. Okay. Interestingly enough. Mm. And the first year, so I studied kinesiology. I went to the University of Western Ontario, which is a university in Ontario in Canada. Mm -hmm. And I studied kinesiology, but I was very interested in taking courses. I mean, there's there's pretty much a predetermined curriculum, but I attracted a situation where I had an opportunity to actually do an honors degree in psychology. So I have two uh, undergrad degrees, one in psychology and one in kinesiology. And I was very much interested in the connection between the mind and the body Uh, and I'm very much a polymath so I didn't I don't like being constrained and told that I can only do these classes or only do those classes and so I started to kind of mix and match Um, by the time I was finished my actually in my undergrad this is an interesting piece I did a semester of my um, the end of my kinesiology degree before I did my psych degree actually in Australia, in Melbourne. Oh, right. So I did an exchange and I lived in Melbourne uh, for, I did a semester of school to finish off my degree and then I spent a year traveling all over Australia and New Zealand and so that's actually oh. when I fell in love with New Zealand I and Australia. Yeah. And it was an incredible life-expanding trip which is another podcast in and of itself. Yep. Um, but fast forward, when I finished my degree in psychology, 
at that point, I was trying to figure out how, so I had one of the jobs that I had was working as a research assistant for an exercise and pregnancy laboratory. Mm. And we were developing exercise and nutrition programs to treat uh, gestational diabetes in women, but also women who were hospitalized in high-risk pregnancies. So at that point, I started thinking, could we create exercise programs to do interventions? But my research particularly focused on the psychosocial side effects of bed rest in women who were hospitalized. So Uh part of my research involved me going to hospitals to collect data and research with with these women, and Mm -hmm. I was doing interviews and, and giving them questionnaires, looking at um, psychosocial side effects. So looking at social support and looking at anxiety and looking at depression or indicators of depression Mm -hmm. um, and trying to understand does being bed rested have an impact? Does the physical experience impact Mm -hmm. the psychosocial experience? And of course it it does. The interesting thing is at that time I thought I wanted to be a phys ed teacher or start somebody who would create clinical, a kinesiologist and somebody who would create clinical interventions. But I was so frustrated in the hospital because I realized that um, I could design the best clinical intervention possible, Mm -hmm. but the infrastructure and the ecosystem that these women were finding themselves in was actually not working very Mm -hmm. well so the you know there wasn't actually the physical health providers talking to the mental health providers and the social health providers they were in a hospital in an acute care setting and there was a massive disconnect and I I realized that at the end of this so the women who managed to give birth the baby managed to survive you know, they were sent home with no resources. Right. So dad, in some cases, dad was at home taking care of the kids who hadn't seen the mom potentially in three to four to five months, holding the fort together at home. Mm-hmm. Mom, who has now gone through this completely stressful experience, mm-hmm. now has potentially even a premature baby that may or may not have additional health issues, who has been separated from the family system, is now being reintroduced back into the family system. Yes. And I was so surprised with the disconnect and fragmentation between the care that they got you know, before they went into the hospital, the care they got in the hospital, and then what happened to them afterwards, mm-hmm. that that sparked my realization that I could serve a number of, of women if I could develop clinical interventions, but I could serve a lot more women if we did administrative interventions. I and see. And that was where, we're going to talk about system change. Yeah, yeah. That was really the birthing for me around the desire to make an impact at a larger level. I see. So that got me really interested in um, looking at doctoral programs mm-hmm. uh, to figure out where, you know, how can I go study health administration mm-hmm. to understand how decisions are made and policies, right. get, policies get put in place and how organizations work together. So mm-hmm. that was the the aha moment I had. Uh, that was the gift of working with um, hospitalized high-risk pregnant women. And was it an aha moment or did it sort of build up to, yes, this is a place that I can contribute? Or Well, it was definitely a build up. I think it was, you know, days of spending hours and hours in the hospital talking to these women and understanding their lived experience and literally seeing who comes in to see them and who doesn't and Mm -hmm. and overhearing, you know, the doctors or the nurses talking to one another and what were they talking about and what were the things that they were not talking about, right? Uh, That I was hearing that I started to think, how come nobody is 
bringing in the social worker and how come nobody is bringing in a physiotherapist or a kinesiologist to actually you know do some of the body movements that we need and do some planning uh, in terms of the the mm. transition out of the hospital yeah. so it was it was definitely a build-up to it but there yeah. was definitely an aha moment and a decision when I decided I'm no longer going to dedicate my life to creating clinical interventions. I did believe that there was a very strong connection between the mind and body, which is now common sense. But back yeah. in the day, that was relatively cutting edge to, to make an uh, uh, to make a statement that said, "Look at if your physical health isn't." well organized your mental health and your social health is mm. going to be affected that was pretty taboo it was relatively you know um advanced for that time mm -hmm. maybe i'm dating myself and how old <laughs> i am but it was it was relatively um mm. It was relatively new for that kind of thinking. So I really kind of tossed that aside and I thought, well, those principles still exist, but if we want to ma make a bigger impact, because again, I just saw so many women and I thought, even if I worked every day for you know 14 hours a day, how many families could I actually make an impact mm -hmm. on? And I really just felt called to make a bigger impact, which yep. drew me into system change. I see. So yeah, it's fascinating. <laughs> I, I'm just curious because so my wife um, actually worked in London for a while at a university, mm -hmm. and she was in what was called the um, IPE, Interprofessional yeah. Education. Yeah. And what they were focusing on was making sure that the doctors understood what the nurse's job was, making sure that the nurses understood what the doctor's job was, yes. which sounds really basic, and you would think it would be known, but yeah. they would basically run some conferences and get the doctors and the nurses together and talk to each other and actually, you know, and just that personal relationships, you know, that that was, they were, they were like ships in the night yes. in some ways, and yeah. so that was the focus there, was how can we help the professions to actually talk? Yep. So yeah. I worked in that system transformation for about between 15 and 20 years. Right. So I left it. I, so I did my undergrad, I did my master's, mm -hmm. and then I decided to go to the University of Toronto. Mm -hmm. um, I did a year in a, a graduate and a PhD program and then found, fell in love with a, a role that I got as a research coordinator working for an initiative called the Canadian Collaborative Mental Health Initiative. Uh, and I remember that experience very vividly because it was another pivotal moment. Mm -hmm. I think I really just went from one pivotal moment to the next, right. um, but working for that initiative was incredible. So that was exactly what they were trying to do. That mm. was my entry into interprofessional education and collaborative practice. Right. And it was a, a nationally funded initiative that brought together 12 national associations for different healthcare providers and uh, and clients or consumers mm. in primary care, mental health, addictions, and then, and then patients or consumers. And so I had the opportunity to see what it would take to get 12 national organizations to work together. How do they find a common purpose? Mm -hmm. What are the elements of success that makes them work well together? And how do they actually facilitate change? That was, a, that was about an 18-month experience. And mm -hmm. so I quit school, much to my parents' dismay, and I'm sure everybody else's shock. I quit the PhD program, worked full-time for this initiative, and then redesigned what I wanted to do from a doctoral level. So I left that, that initiative, that project, Still stayed at the University of Toronto, but I went into the Institute for Health Policy Management Evaluation, which is a which is within the health um, the health 
world. Mm-hmm. It's really health administration, but that was the, the technical term. Right. And that was when I decided, um, because I had seen for 18 months this desire to build into professional education. I was I started I started my consulting practice at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was working with other organizations that were trying to develop inter-organization, or sorry, inter-professional education and collaborative practice. And so I worked with leaders at the Center for Interprofessional Education at the University of Toronto. That's what it was called. Right. I think the name has changed now, but at the time it was at the University of Toronto. Mm. And I started uh, working in that entire global community. And so I really actually, because it resonated for me, I had just lived that experience in doing my master's. Right. I believed deeply in the idea that we needed to figure out how to get professionals, healthcare professionals to work together. Mm. The difference was that I had an aha moment Mm -hmm. because if we're going to be patient centered Mm -hmm. um, and we follow what happens to patients in the healthcare system, what we recognize is that a patient doesn't stay within one organization. So you don't just see a nurse or a doctor or a social worker or a podiatrist or a dentist in one location, you actually move from one organization to the next. So I had a realization that while everybody else was really focused on getting healthcare professionals to work in teams and we were having, you know, massive amounts of funding flowing into understanding what does collaborative practice mean, what does the interprofessional education mean, uh, the massive system and transformation around getting the pre-licensure and post-licensure academic institutions on board, getting the policy leaders on board, the decision makers on board, the academic hospitals and all those other institutions in that ecosystem mm-hmm. that really have to buy into a shared goal. Everybody was getting ready and organized around that interprofessional education and collaborative practice. And I stepped out of that while I was working in it. So my um, consulting practice was really focused on that. Mm -hmm. I stepped out of it from a research perspective and said, somebody needs to solve the problem of how to get at, at an administrative level organizations to work together in the same same way. And mm. so that's what my research focused on was looking at the interorganizational relationships and that was so um maybe provocative or ahead of its time that people mm. didn't even know what interorganizational partnerships meant right. in healthcare. What are you talking about? They had no <laughs> I, it was so interesting. I was fascinated. Yeah. I thought what do you mean you don't know? And so I had to call it working together across organizations because it was so new. And there wasn't any research actually in healthcare on interorganizational partnerships. I actually had to go study the business literature. Right. So I went off and I studied. The, you know, I did all of my you know studies and comprehensive exams, and I put together a proposal to the government. So a lot of my peers and colleagues normally, um, you take a piece of your thesis advisor's research and you and you write it up and you analyze it, and that's your dissertation. Mm-hmm. Um, I decided that I would go and get funding. So we created a 10 partner or uh, 10 organization partnership. We got a significant chunk of money from the uh, from the government to be able to fund an initiative, and we put together a two-year project that actually would look at, um, we did some research and understanding. We were trying to answer the question, if you formalized a organizational partnership, did we see better outcomes in collaboration at the level of healthcare professionals and at the level of administrators? Right. And so that was the question that we were trying to answer because the the 
the assumption is if you have a written agreement or some kind of a formalized partnership, mm. that that's somehow going to be better for, for the outcomes. Mm. And so that was the focus of our research. And once we did our research, we actually did some capacity building in the system. So it was still focused on the, the primary, uh, primary mental health care, so the relationship between primary care, mental health, and addiction organizations. But right. it was at an organizational level and not a pro- healthcare professional level. I see. So we did that parallel um, and then sort of, I would say, started the conversation in the healthcare world to say, we need to look at organizational partnerships. And so after my research was done, I had, of course, I had three babies during my doctorate while I launched my consulting practice. And so it was a very busy Mm. six years. I defended my doctorate on the Monday and I gave birth on the Sunday to my last (laughs) son. (laughs) So it was full on. And I think at that point when I finished my doctorate, I really sort of took a deep breath and then decided... I'm going to take some time to figure out what do I want to do next. And yeah. that was um, a realization that as much as I love healthcare and that's my roots and I was involved in it for, for many years prior to my doctorate and many years afterwards, mm-hmm. that I realized that that wasn't my stop. You know, that wasn't my bus stop. Right. That, that was a that was an incubator for me to gather experience about large system transformation, working all the way up to the World Health Organization, speaking internationally yep. about interprofessional education and collaborative practice, being involved in system transformation from the inside as a policymaker, as a decision maker, as an academic and mm-hmm. a researcher, as a healthcare provider. So I practiced as a kinesiologist for a while. So I got to see um, all perspectives of the system mm-hmm. and watch and have the privilege, I could say, and the challenge because it was certainly a lot of work to see how system transformation happens. And once I had the opportunity, I had the realization, another aha moment, that this is not my bus stop. My job is now to look at how can I take my insights from healthcare around organizational partnering and go test them out in the rest of the world. So I really did sort of leave healthcare and the nonprofit world, and I went in back into the for-profit world, and I started testing some of the theories mm-hmm. uh, to see whether or not the principles would hold in other partnering examples. And I so... See. So it's kind of all that background and years of research and work build up to a moment where you actually go on a slightly different course, taking what you'd learn. Yes. Well, let's go there. Um, Sure. But just before we do that, yeah, it's quite interesting, though, because my wife, you know, this was my wife's world for about two years where she kept coming home talking about IPE and (laughs) we ran another conference for the nurses and the doctors and stuff. So she's going to love this interview. Yeah. She's going to be like, oh, Oh, I can't believe you talked about that. Yeah, you should go look at my LinkedIn profile because I think I still have some examples of initiatives and projects that we ran with some of the, the documents that came out of it. But I really feel... Oh, so privileged. It was a amazing, I would say at least a, a good solid 10 years. It was definitely over a 20-year period, I would say, healthcare in general, but a yeah. good solid 10 years of working in IPE and IPC. Yeah. Um, and they, uh, this sort of, I owe so much to that community that taught me about mm-hmm. how to do system transformation. I worked with incredible visionary leaders who were cutting edge, provocative, you know, they were studying the top um, thought leaders around the world Mm -hmm. around system transformation and transformational leadership and really bringing those principles in and then applying it to healthcare. Mm. And I mean, it just, again, I have so much gratitude for having gone through that Mm. because I lived it. So now in the work that we do in, in, in my institute that we've created, 
I really bring with me that lived experience. So not only do I have the theoretical and the academic experience, mm. but I have, you know, 20 years mm. of lived experience all the way from being that researcher studying, you know, hospitalized high-risk pregnant women. Right. And again, you can't experiment with high-risk. You can't put a pregnant woman in a hospital bed and say, don't move, because that's unethical. So we had to study the astronauts, so what happened in, in to astronauts in outer space. So it was this fantastic journey that eventually got me to the point where you know all parts of my life came together. So one of the things we didn't talk about but comes mm -hmm. into that moment in life where I have, you know, four, two, I call it the year of four, two, and brand new. Mm -hmm. So I had a four-year-old, a two-year-old, a, a brand new baby, mm -hmm. just finished my doctorate, um, you know, my consulting practice is growing and I'm now offered the opportunity to say what's next. There was a moment when I sort of connected my present moment to my past. And uh, I, I tell a little a story and I'll, I'll share the short version mm. of my little pink book. So being that curious little girl growing up, I would have journals and uh, notebooks that I would write down my observations about humanity and things that caught me emotionally, whether it was good things or bad things, mm. crises or cause, but some th th my observations, the things that I noticed in the world. And I eventually I would write those particular reflections in a little pink book. Mm. And I still have um, what I call my idea books today. I have lots of them. I have them all the way from, I think I threw out pretty much everything in my childhood, right. except for the versions of the little the idea books. books throw yeah. those away, right? <laughs> I probably still have some. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I always had some sort of a journal or a diary right. or a notebook mm -hmm. of some kind. And eventually my most precious ideas ended up in a little pink book, which I no longer update, but I still keep in my drawer in my office as a reminder of the things that I cared a lot about. And of course, healthcare and uh, mental health and addictions and cancer and homelessness mm. and you know things about war, but also the, the parts about humanity that are really inspiring. So inspirational speakers, or I always had a dream of going to outer space. I still do one day. I would love the opportunity to see Earth from you know mm. from the moon or from another you know perspective outside of the earth mm -hmm. and so I would write down these observations and at one point in my early 20s I had around the time when I was making the decision to move from clinical interventions to administrative and system level change I realized I read the book and I got really depressed super sad because I really mm. cared about all of these issues and I thought there's no person on the planet that could ever possibly make a difference in all of these issues. If we've been working in healthcare and we still in 10 years have so much more to do or 20 mm. years still have so much more to do. And that was when I realized I'm not going to do it on my own. There isn't one organization in any one of those sectors or industries or causes or crises that's going to tackle that issue. What we really need is a paradigm on working together better right. and it happened right around the time when everything that was changing in the healthcare system the, the work that I was doing mm -hmm. that I realized I'm going to dedicate my life to developing an art and science of strategic partnering to help people solve the biggest problems facing humanity mm -hmm. I started practicing in healthcare that was where a lot of my lived experience came from but when I left, uh, so when I say I left, when I moved and transitioned out of healthcare, that was the the realization that I 
it was an incubator. It was a part of my life for me to gather certain experiences, but mm. it wasn't the bus stop. I actually needed to move mm. into the next conversation so that I could continue to refine. So we have a philosophy of, of partnering that we call value-based partnerships. Mm-hmm. So to develop a new paradigm, that's our philosophy. Um, we have a set of principles and practices that I've been slowly refining over the years in multiple, you know, I, we try to uh, come up with an approach that will tackle partnering issues, regardless of the size of the partnership, the complexity of the partnership, whether it's formal or informal, short-term or long-term, regardless of the task, what the partners do together, Mm -hmm. and regardless of the type. So if it's a joint venture, a merger, an acquisition, if it's a strategic relationship or a strategic alliance, a board of directors, a strategic initiative, I mean, there's so many ways that we talk about our customers, our um, suppliers, like supply chains or franchises, those are all different forms of interrelationships between individuals and organizations. Mm. And that's really what we're dedicated to, is how do we help people work together to tackle bigger and more complex issues? And then where the leadership stuff comes in is, how do we fill in core leadership principles that people need in order to be better partners? And then how do we introduce concepts of stewardship to help people understand that they're actually part of a longer conversation, Mm. right? So we can talk about that in in a little bit, if you like, Mm -hmm. where that that whole concept of stewardship comes into facilitating large system transformation. But we ultimately start with the idea that humans have really complex experiences. They're just getting, the issues we face are more and more and more complex every year. Mm. And it becomes more and more difficult to work with people that we just like, that we know, like, and trust, right? That's who we are attracted to. Mm-hmm. But inevitably, Mother Nature's, you know, very curious in her approach to humanity as well. We always have to work with people that we don't know, we don't like, and we don't trust. Mm-hmm. And so could I come up with a a paradigm of partnering that would help us do that, which mm. is what really we're dedicated what to. What you're doing. So what was it that made you realize, I want to push the boat out in this new direction? Because I would have thought, you know, you'd been doing what you'd been doing for years. You were comfortable. You'd just gotten your doctorate. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. for many people, that would be the time when you put your head down and you keep going in that direction. Yeah. Was there something, like, was it the birth of your child? You know, or what? what was it that kind of you thought no, actually, it's time to do something different. Because doing something different is always a challenge. You know, it it presumably at the beginning, you're not getting the income coming in (laughs) right away (laughs) as you start something new. And you've had previous jobs and things. So what was it, do you think, that that sparked that for you? I know the exact moment. Yeah? So I was at a conference, and you can ask your wife. She might even know about this. It was a conference called Collaborating Across Borders. It was a U.S.-Canadian primarily conference around interprofessional education and collaborative practice. It was somewhere, I think, in eastern Canada. I want to say that maybe even Nova Scotia. And I was standing with a colleague of mine. Her name is Jill Shaver. Um, and we were standing in the middle, literally in the middle of the highest traffic point where people were moving from one uh, conference room to another conference room. And we must right. have had about a four-hour conversation, literally standing in the middle of this conference as everybody was you know, going to plenaries and right. their workshops. Right, workshops and, and yeah, yeah, everybody's been to conferences, so they yeah, get yeah. that uh, flow. But I want you to imagine that the two of us had just sort of connected Mm. and almost created like a bubble because I don't even remember the faces of people going by. I just remember standing there and having the conversation with Jill Mm. and saying to her, Jill, 
I'm feeling like this is not my bus stop. I love this community. I've learned so much from this community. I have so much gratitude, but I feel that there's something else that I'm here to do. And mm. I'm seeing people get up on, you know, get up on the stage and share their incredible research and celebrate, you know, the accomplishments and how hard we've worked and some of the mountains that we've climbed together. And I have so much joy and fulfillment in seeing that. Mm-hmm. And there's a part of me that realizes that I have no desire. It's not um, it's not in me to see myself on the stage stewarding a conversation. There's something else that I'm meant to do. Mm-hmm. And I think it was having a friend and a colleague, particularly this this individual, she's magnificent, um, having somebody who understood that and mm-hmm. could see me, could hear me, could understand and not feel threatened by it. She just, I think, provided the space mm-hmm. um, in the middle of the craziest place. You would not think you would have that aha moment in, out in public or right. you know, with hundreds of people walking by. But I think she provided the safe space for me to come to the awareness that it was time for me to make a pivot. And really, I think that's part of what Jill does uh, for other leaders, not just me, but she just, she was the right, Mm -hmm. it was the perfect alchemy for me to connect with the realization that I can be grateful for where I've come from, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't have to define, it always sort of shapes who you are, but it doesn't have to define who you are. Mm -hmm. And so it, it, it opened up the possibility that there was something else. Mm. And it, again, it's, it's sort of a, a sort of a chain of events, but it was my willingness to say, uh, thank you for what has happened up until now and to be open to where I would go next. Mm. And I think people often ask the question, did you know that you would end up where you are now? And honestly, not a clue. Mm. I think that as I evolved as a human being, I refined the ability and I continue to refine it. I don't think I'm finished, but I've continued to refine the ability to hear my inner voice, to be guided by a sense of meaning and purpose, to continue to earn the right to be authentic. And I say earn the right to be authentic because I think one of the biggest challenges of being a human being Mm. is to be yourself in a world that's trying to make you something else every day. Mm. I have a little sticky note above my bed still, a little yellow post-it note that says that very thing, that every day my biggest challenge is to continue to be me in a world that's trying to mold me to to something else. And I think that uh, having that a little bit of self-awareness and a willingness to listen hard for that whisper that only I can hear, Mm. that inner voice that only I can hear, and to stay true to that is really what continues to guide me even to this day. Mm. So I ha- it's not that I don't set goals. If you know me, I have a 98-page goal master planning book. So I have intentions about what I would love to contribute to humanity. But I am I work with the universe and I work with the opportunities that show up mm-hmm. by maintaining that sort of sense of authenticity and, and maybe you can call it integrity, but authenticity and sense of who I am. And I just am open to the opportunities that come up. And that moment when I realized I need to sort of um, transcend or move beyond this community was that me, that was me trusting that inner voice and Mm. saying, all right, I don't, I'm not sure what the next step is, Mm. but I trust that the the story will unfold and Mm. there will be a few steps ahead of me that show up. And my job is just to keep listening to that inner voice. I think Mm. that was a real it's not that I didn't have that awareness earlier, but I, it was a real pivotal moment for me to trust that sense that 
I don't always have to know what the form is. I just have to have a general direction mm. and the willingness to follow that frequency or that resonation of that vibration. Yeah. There's two things that stick out to me when you're talking just now. You know, the first one is that um, we're all busy, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and it feels sometimes like the schedule, you know, before we started recording, we both agreed that we'd had very busy days. Yeah. <laughs> we'd gone from meeting to meeting. And it's actually hard to carve out that space to reflect and to take a moment and go, what am I here for? What am I doing? And one of the, my hopes for the podcast, the reason why I'm articulating this is that there will be people listening mm. who maybe have never stopped and reflected yeah. and thought about. Yeah. So hopefully this conversation can help them in that sense. So I think that's the first thing. And then the second thing is the value of a friend who's able to listen yeah. and to give you that space to express. And you were probably not, I don't really know what this means. You know, what, what am I Am I crazy? Yeah. You know, like it was, it was probably that type of a things. conversation. <laughs> and, but being, um, I guess what I'm saying is the importance of those people in our lives. Yeah. And then the, the flip side of that is who are we, that person, you know, for other people? Yes. What role can we play for other people to be that point where they're willing to talk with us and, yeah. and help guide along, you know, different paths? Yeah. So it's really interesting. Yeah. I, I appreciate the story. It's really good. Yeah, I think yeah. you know if I go back, there's so many things that Jill offered in that moment. But the biggest thing was that she took a breath with me. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's connected to uh, the fact that we're so busy in our days. Uh, finding that center point and and hearing that inner voice and that whisper, mm. I find for me the biggest um, tool that I have is the ability to take a breath. Mm. When I find that I can take a breath, it's in that breath that I can become present in the moment with where I am, who I'm with, why I'm here, and where am I going. Mm -hmm. And I know Jill offered that for me in that moment in that busy conference where I was feeling vulnerable and you know challenged and uncertain. And she just breathed with me, mm -hmm. you know, among other things. But taking a breath with me to say, <sighs> "Yeah, you know, where am I?" Take that deep breath. Yeah. And in a way, you know, thinking about your grandfather, yeah. you know, the ability to laugh and yeah. just relax in the moment. Yeah. You know, I, I have a feeling, I didn't know him, obviously, but he probably had that ability as well, you know, to just be in the present. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd love to talk a little bit um, just about, I guess, your focus now. Sure, <laughs> and we, yeah. We've talked to, and yesterday <laughs> we had a great session just thinking uh, in particular, I'm thinking about the city of Christchurch yeah. and where we are now and where we're going in the future. And how do you broker those sorts of partnerships? How do you take people on a journey that sees collaboration resulting? Mm -hmm. And how do you look at strategic change and, you know, big picture stuff? Yeah. Can you just give us a couple of thoughts and maybe some of the pictures you used yesterday as well? Yeah. So I think that uh, for the purpose of the podcast, I'm going to share a couple of tangible tools, but I want to preface it with, you know, in working with any community or group of people or an ecosystem, mm -hmm. I think the starting point is earning the right to influence people's thinking. So Einstein said that a problem can't be solved at the same level of thinking that created that problem. Mm. And so start, you know, the, the, the basic building block is that if we bring people together and we're going to talk about an issue, we're going to try to make a decision or try to facilitate change. 
if we come at the situation with the same level of thinking before that we had before walking in that room, we're probably going to get very similar results and, ha- and sort of, we call it circling the barn, continue a, a revolution going around and around in circles because we don't have new thinking and a new perspective on the situation. Mm-hmm. So the first thing um, in facilitating transformation is we have to shift our thinking. And the metaphor that I like to use, I want you to imagine that every mind is like a library that is has bookshelves, and on every bookshelf, every space on the bookshelf is full. So every mind that walks into a room in a conversation about facilitating change is full when it gets to the meeting. Mm-hmm. What we need to do as leaders and facilitators of that conversation is find a way to magically create more space on the bookshelf. One of the ways that we do that with leaders is to ask them questions and have them identify what their priorities are. Mm. So even today, we had a workshop with a room of you know 65 business leaders in mm. Christchurch, and we started, I gave them the same metaphor, the same example, and I, and I asked them, what do you want to know today? What are the questions that you came here with? What are the priorities? What are the issues that you want to solve? And we made a list of mm. all of those, and metaphorically, just like, you know, a magical uh, library on Harry Potter, mm-hmm. when you ask a question, when the mind asks a question, the, lo- the, the bookshelf opens up and another space for more information or more answers or more books right. is created. And so that space, that void, that question creates the desire to have an answer mm-hmm. and new invites new information into that. And we have an infinite capability in terms of the size of the library that's in our mind Mm -hmm. so step one is if we can always put another curious kitten book on the shelf exactly (laughs) exactly i have an endless uh, endless space for more curious kitten books and so that's where i would start Mm -hmm. you know human beings our perceptions is what lead to our behaviors our actions and our results Mm -hmm. and we try to often to do behavioral interventions but we don't address the thinking the perceptions that are driving those behaviors Mm -hmm. and so the the bookshelf metaphor the library metaphor is really just to remind leaders that if you want to facilitate transformation we need to start with different thinking if we can change our thinking we can transform our thinking we know from neuroplasticity that our minds are constantly remodeling as we are picking up new pieces of information. So if we can um, have people ask questions, have them identify priorities that they care about, we can create more space on the bookshelf. With more space on the bookshelf, more information can come in. Once we have new information or more information about a situation, we can look at old problems in new ways. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the starting point. Right. If we have the same old thinking, the same old perspective, and the same old problems, we get the same old results. So I would say that's the starting point. From there, um, and let's make it really tangible because system transformation is complex, and there's many layers in terms of helping leaders, I would say, earn the right to facilitate more and more complex change because you cannot manage something that you're emotional about. That's one of the other key principles. Mm-hmm. So often uh, when we're working with leaders, and, and we see this, this is normal, right? People look at a system, they feel that it's broken, or they see an opportunity, they wanna step into a leadership role because they wanna fix things. Uh, but we can't manage what we're emotional about because we're caught in the dynamic. Right. We're, we're, we can't see the forest for the trees is another phrase that we say. Mm-hmm. So helping leaders understand um, some basic principles around leadership, self-leadership, 
is important to their ability to facilitate partnerships or system change or stewarding change over a period of time. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of principles that we could get into, and I don't want to do uh, like too too in depth, but just sort of high level, uh, a couple of principles. So I would say, so let's define leadership, partnership, and stewardship, just to put that, because those three are really the pillars that come together for system transformation. Leadership um, is the ability to harmonize one mind. Really, we're talking about leadership of yourself, governance of yourself, um, and the ability to know oneself, because it's really difficult to lead other people if you don't know who you are as a person. You can't listen to that inner voice. So step one is really harmonization of one mind. Step two is the ability to harmonize many minds. So partnering is the ability to harmonize many minds. And stewardship is the ability to harmonize many minds over generations. Right. Okay? So um, let's go through just sort of at a high level. So from a leadership perspective, if we can't lead things that we are emotional about, our job is to find the chaos and the order to be able to, let's say we are wanting to facilitate transformation we call level eight leadership is the ability to lead something that comes through you versus from you. And the difference between through you versus from you, from you is when you are emotionally caught in a dynamic. You have an intention of what you think the system needs to change to Mm. versus being able as a leader to come in and recognize that all systems are on an evolutionary path, identifying where is the state of evolution that that system is currently in and how do you facilitate what I would call the homeostasis, the, the pairing of opposites, the dance within that system to be able to see the chaos and the order and to order the chaos in that system mm-hmm. to be able to understand and unlock the intelligence that then, that's in there. So I very much believe that system, in systems theory and that um, ecosystems or systems are self-organizing. So they're dynamic, they're constantly changing and they're self-organizing um, and they have the... Uh, insights uh, uh, within the system Mm -hmm. to be able to solve the problems within it. But a leader, when leadership comes through them, is their ability to resonate uh, with the intelligence of that system and to facilitate the conversation between often pairs of opposites Mm -hmm. to be able to facilitate the transformation of that system. So at its core, from a leadership perspective, those principles are really critical for them, for people and leaders and visionaries who are in these organizational roles to understand before they go to a partnering conversation, Mm. understanding principles of human behavior, understanding um, some core principles around leadership, um, this idea that you can't lead what you what you can't what you're emotional about. Uh, those are some core principles from a leadership perspective that we teach before we even get to the conversation around how do you actually partner? Everybody wants to know, how do you do it? What does the, you know, the perfect contract have to look like? And mm. how, what you should you be talking about in meetings? And how do you identify an mm. ideal partner? But leadership comes first. Mm. It's fascinating because it really comes back to things. The same themes are coming up over and over. Yeah. You know, it's being self-aware, being aware of who you are, taking time to breathe. Mm-hmm. You know, those are basic things. But too often we get too focused on, well, but what's the leadership principle number 10.1B, yes. which will get me the result I <laughs> yeah, want. Yeah. I want the practical, you yeah. know what I mean? We're all and looking for guarantees, yeah, right? And, yeah. and in a system that actually is constantly remodeling. So the second that we, and we know this as researchers too, as much as we try to answer really tough questions and get a firm answer, give it time and the answer will change. You know, it, it depends conversation. So 
absolutely from from a research uh, from a leadership perspective uh the ability to harmonize your own mind gives you insights into human behavior, which is the the piece that you need for the next step around partnering. Because partnering uh, is really about mastery of of human behaviors and relationships among individuals. Mm. So we're going to. So we have a philosophy that we call value based partnerships. Uh, value based partnerships is about focusing on shared highest priorities for mutual benefit and growth. Mm-hmm. And we have a series of principles and practices that guide that framework. But I thought what would be helpful for today is really just to talk about the three key criteria or principles that need to be in place for good strategic partnering relationships. So that be sound like something maybe our, our, our listeners yeah, would want yeah. to talk about. Yeah. So um, there's so many things that we could get to around partnering, but at its core, uh, a lot of the frustrations that people experience in partnering, things like, uh, you know, people will bring me up and say, Annette, uh, our engagement is really low. Nobody is calling us back. You know, people don't return our emails. People show up to meetings late or they leave early. They're not prepared. People aren't engaged in decision making. Nobody's volunteering to take responsibility. We have power struggles, territory struggles, conflict, inability to make decisions. We can't read our, reach our deadlines. Like all of these are symptoms of deeper root causes. Mm. And so our job is to be investigators in our partnering relationships to really look at what are the root causes of those symptoms. And what we've discovered in our research is that there are really three criteria. There are three things, the ingredients that must be in place for strategic partnerships to work well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Criteria number one is shared purpose. Criteria number two is better together. And criteria number three is impact on priorities. Uh, So just quickly at a high level, um, the shared purpose uh, criteria basically says that the organizations involved must have a shared purpose, priority, or outcome, or purpose that all of the partners are working towards. Mm. They must agree on a shared purpose. Okay, criteria number two, which is better together, basically says that all of the partners must believe that they need each other in order to accomplish that purpose or goal. Because the second that somebody around the table feels like somebody else is expendable, right, then Mm -hmm. we start to get fracturing of the relationship because we feel like we have inefficient use of resources. So if I don't need you and you don't need me, we have no reason to collaborate. If we have no shared goal and no sense of interdependence, right, there's no partnership affinity, then we really don't need to be working together. We're actually just taking up energy and resources that's unnecessary. And if you think you need me and I don't think I need you, I think that you're expendable and you're replaceable. Mm. And we see this in for-profit relationships as well as nonprofits, right? Mm. Um, The third criteria is impact on priorities. And this is really critical because it helps organizations understand why we can start off with a really strong partnering relationship, but it ebbs and flows over time. So every organization has what we call a list. Every organization has a strategic direction or a a set of strategic priorities or a business plan of some kind, Mm. whether it's formal or informal, but they have a general direction of a GPS destination of where that organization is headed towards. Mm. Um, So if the partnering relationship doesn't have an impact on the strategic priorities of each organization that is involved, then you become expendable. 
right? Because in a board of directors situation or an executive team, you prioritize the use of resources in your company or in your nonprofit organization according to what your strategic priorities are. Mm. So if you have a relationship that isn't contributing to making an impact on one of those strategic priorities, then the relationship, again, is is expendable. Yeah. So those are the three core things. Number one, having a shared purpose. Number two, believing that you're better together. You actually must believe that you need each other. And number three, impact on priorities, making sure that you are constantly staying relevant. Because mm-hmm. once your partner's priorities change, once they do, they have a board meeting, they do you know, strategic planning, and they change their strategic priorities, if mm-hmm. your organization's partnership isn't relevant, you've just become expendable because they yeah. change over time, they ebb and flow. Yeah, no, I like that. I like that focus on purpose, better together, yeah. and what are your priorities. You know, yeah. That's got to be at the front, isn't it? And if people want to find out more and things, what we'll do maybe is put a link to your website in the show notes. So people listening, they can scroll down and then click and find out more. Because I know you're traveling a lot and doing lots of speaking. I'd just like to finish off, if it's okay, you talked about that um, leadership, learning, legacy. In your mind, is that like a triangle? (laughs) Like, are they all connected pieces? Or is it more like a, I don't know, a flow chart? It's more like three overlapping circles. It's it's sort of how we, or like a Venn diagram with with three elements. Uh, But you could see it as a three sides of a a triangle, like Mm -hmm. a trinity, or three-legged stool, metaphorically, same idea. But I believe that those are the three core ingredients, at least for the work that we do and the Mm -hmm. clients that we serve and the mission that we're trying to fulfill Mm -hmm. um, having the conversation because if you can lead yourself and if you can harmonize a conversation among many individuals and organizations the missing piece um, that is really what provides context is understanding that you are only one chapter in a never-ending book Mm -hmm. so you inherit right as as leaders in an organization you inherit the decision making of the people that came before you even if you start a new company, you're in an ecosystem that is comprised of decisions that people made before you. So in effect, we're in a very long relay race. It'd be another metaphor, right? Mm. So we actually um, steward. So I, I think we defined it, but stu- stewardship is the ability to lead something that doesn't belong to you, right? Right. So this idea that we in- we inherit, mm-hmm. or you know, somebody passes the baton to us, mm-hmm. we carry the baton for a period of time, yep. facilitating you know some sort of transformation, regardless of what level of a, of a system complexity that we're at. But we facilitate transformation for a period of time, and then when our time is over, we hand the baton to the next individual or organization. That one of the greatest challenges um, for leaders or visionary leaders or people who are trying to champion change Mm. is that our identity gets wrapped up in the contribution that we're trying to make. This is my legacy. This is my agenda. This is my plan of action. And so we start to take ownership of something that actually doesn't belong to us and never belonged to us. It was entrusted to us from other people from a community or an ecosystem that's way bigger than myself, mm-hmm. I'm entrusted with that um, stewardship of that cause or that crisis or that conversation or system transformation for a period of time. Yeah. It was never mine. It is never mine. It will never belong to any one person. But is it a continuation, a, a never-ending relay race or a never-ending book where we just are stewarding for a period of time? So 
when we work with leaders around system transformation, it's helping them to understand the system was evolving before you came along. Mm -hmm. It's now at a particular level of evolution and it will continue to evolve after you. So there's no, there's no race. I know we have, you know, we create artificial timelines that create pressure and action and that's fine, but helping to understand where we've come from, it's very much like family dynamics, right? Mm -hmm. When you understand where the journey of your ancestors and your family history gives you insights to where you are in the longer conversation, Mm -hmm. which gives you foresight into what's going to happen potentially in the future. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's really good. It's, there's been so many echoes through our conversation as well, you know, thinking back to your grandfather, your father, you know, like the family and then, um, what we're talking about now and a phrase that I often come back to for my own self is don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, which I love because it's, you know, we're just one piece you know, yeah. it's not all about me. It's not all about you. It's, but it's very often as humans, I think we tend to build up our ego around, well, I did this, I founded this, or I, you yeah. know, and that can distract us from the, the legacy side of we're just here for a season and yeah. we're passing things on. So, yeah, yeah. well, and I, I just want to say thank you so much for your time. I know you've had a really busy day and you've taken a bit of time for this podcast, so I really appreciate it. Well, thank um, you. Thank you for spearing um, the conversation around seeds. I think, you know, the, the project that you're working on and bringing visionaries together to, to talk about the little piece of the puzzle that they have. If I mm-hmm. think about a global mosaic, right, yeah. we each have a little piece of that mosaic that we contribute to. So thank you for bringing those mosaic pieces together and showing us a new you know, perspective on humanity. So thank yeah, you. Yeah, no problem at all. Thank you. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that interview. I know for me there were several things which stood out, and in particular that emphasis on generational stewardship. You know, that idea that we have what we have, but actually it's only for a temporary time. And I think too often in our culture we get focused on the temporary and the things that aren't really of consequence. If you enjoyed this interview, then consider checking out some of the more than 100 other ones in the back catalog. There's lots of information at theseeds.nz. There's a Twitter account, a Facebook account. There's lots of ways you can connect with me, and I love to hear feedback. The biggest way you can help out is by leaving some sort of a rating or review of this or posting about it on social media so that other people can find out about the podcast. Until next time.